Welcome to episode 14 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, Patrick and I are interviewing Pat David from the GNU Image Manipulation Program, aka GIMP. Hi, Pat. Thank you for being with us. Could you please introduce yourself and explain your current work as well as your current involvement with GIMP? Hi, yeah, I'm Pat David. Um, I'm kind of a, a, a an ancillary member of the GIMP team. Uh, I think that if anyone was to know many of my work for GIMP specifically, it was uh, the current website was something that I had built for them from scratch. Um, it was kind of my way to give back to the community because I wasn't uh, prepared to start making commits to the actual code base of GIMP. That's probably not a very safe thing to do. But uh, I've been using GIMP for many years. Uh, you know, it's it's the standard image processing software that I had available on many of my Linux distributions. So that was what I had become accustomed to using. Uh, do you contribute to GIMP as part of your job or in your spare time? In my spare time. It's uh, any anytime I have available to me, I try to do what I can to help out the project in some way. Uh, if not the website, then, you know, marketing or outreach or support, which I think are all very, very important parts of free software projects um, to really help spread the word help people understand what it means to have and use free software. And then, you know, to be able to provide a level of support that they were likely not going to get from many free software projects because we don't have that many dedicated people for it. So yeah, my spare time in the evenings, that's what I try to do. Good. Do you mind sharing with us what you do as your day job? Um, yeah, sure. I'm actually a re- I, I, I run research and development for a software company doing uh, R and D for the U S Navy through the office of Naval research. That's the short answer. I, I don't know. I don't know that I should go into the into the longer answer just yet, but no, no, it's fine. Okay, so for our listeners who may not know yet GIMP, what is it and what kind of different yeah people use GIMP? Uh, sure, right. So uh, GIMP, right the the GNU Image Manipulation Program. This is uh, a raster editor for images, right? So it you know. If you need to edit bitmap images where you're doing any kind of pixel manipulation in an image, I'm assuming people know what a pixel are. Um, it, this is uh, this is what this tool is for, right? It's it's built to manipulate pixel images in various different ways, and the people that use it, geez, it's it's a huge audience. So a lot of uh, digital artists will use it. A lot of uh, photographers like to use it, and um, a lot of scientists will also tend to, it's, it provides a visual, uh, a, a way to visually manipulate pixel or raster images um, directly on the screen. So you can get that immediate feedback and kind of investigate what's going on with different images. So uh, between that, I think, and uh, a rather robust plugin architecture for it uh, and being uh, free software and open, I think it uh, it's, it's interesting for many people to be able to use. Okay, thanks. What kind of image processing can be done with GIMP? Oof, what can't be done eventually with GIMP, right? It's kind of a loaded question. So, it, you know, all the standard things someone might want to do when they think about having to manipulate a bitmap image to begin with, right? So maybe making it brighter, uh, making it darker, uh, increasing the contrast, blurring something, sharpening something, right? These are all very common things. When people think about an image, what they think about is, you know, how do I make it better? And then in their mind, they have some some thought about what they think better is. So we GIMP tends to provide all of the real basic tools you're going to need to do uh, some most of the common manipulations you might want to. There are more complex ones as well, but it helps to understand what's going on underneath the uh, underneath everything first. 
So it has a huge range of manipulation filters, functions, and tools. Okay. As a user of GIMP, and, um, do you have a specific uh, workflow that you currently use for your image? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's important to understand the context, right? So I'd, I'd say the two largest bases of users for GIMP in general are digital artists. These are people that are doing paintings, drawings, sketches, right, where you're doing a digital manipulation of an artwork on canvas, uh, as opposed to somebody who's manipulating an existing image, uh, like a photographer, right? So I could take an image I get out of my raw processing software, and maybe I want to make some final adjustments in some way, a blur, a vignette, some sharpening or something that, that I might not have done in a previous step. So my personal workflow, of course, is to come from um, whatever my previous software is. And as a photographer, I'm usually doing raw processing. So dark table or raw therapy. Um, and then the output from those systems, I'll bring into GIMP for any pixel manipulation that I need to do. Sometimes this might be um, in my own case where I can separate an image into a frequency domain using what they call wavelet scales or wavelet decomposition. And this allows me to manipulate an image based on its frequency um, versus uh, the spatial image that you'll see, like the actual image itself. So if I want to manipulate fine details versus broader details, it's very easy to do so in something like that, which is a common thing because I like to shoot portraits personally. So there's a lot of skin retouching or that kind of thing. And I've got a three-year-old, so I've got a lot of food stain clothing I have to get off. <laughs> but So yeah, it, it varies depending on the kind of image. Okay. Does GIMP integrate with Darktable? Can you use it as an external uh, image editor? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, you can also do it uh, the other way as well, which is kind of nice. Uh, last, no, I, I guess this would be two years ago at the Libre Graphics meeting. I think that the GIMP and Darktable devs kind of sat down and, and hammered at things for a, a little bitty mini hack fest one evening. And uh, what ended up happening was when you try to open a raw image file in GIMP, So if you try to open something from your camera where there's a raw image like a NEF or a CR2 um, from Canon, uh, GIMP can launch an instance of a raw editor like Darktable for you, for you to do those manipulations in Darktable. And then when you're done, they get brought into GIMP at that point. Okay. Is there any integration in other software beside Darktable to do any other tasks? Uh, I think we can have, you know, we can, GIMP is certainly launchable as an external editor and things like raw therapy and other projects as well. So you can always refer to, to GIMP to be the next stage in a tool chain. Okay. So a very nice use case for a researcher is maybe he has done an experiment and have thousands of images and yeah, to avoid repetitive tasks, what are the scripting capabilities of GIMP and how far can they get you so that one do not have to maybe make every 1,000 images by hand, Brighter maybe can you use a script to do this? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Right? GIMP has a pretty uh, robust interface for scripting, right? So there's lots of different ways to do this. Uh, you know, the earliest ones are things where we can use a scheme, a Lisp, Lispy language called script foo that we use. Uh, we can also use much more common languages like Python. Uh, bindings are available to write things in uh, Perl or even things like GIMP Ruby or GIMP Sharp if you want to. So we have bindings to, to support lots of different languages. Most commonly, it'll be um, uh, Scheme, which is Lispy, and uh, Python. But yes, it, once you've started uh, kind of looking at creating... Um, bulk operations in something like Python, you have access to all of the tool chain that GIMP makes available. So you could, in theory, script, you know, thousands of images relatively quickly 
using Python to call GIMP functions if you want to. Uh, I'm personally a big proponent of using the right tool for the right job. So when you've got a large set of image processing that has to happen, I think that there are probably better uh, better solutions in this case, if, especially if you don't need to manually manipulate or see each of those images along the way. So things like image magic or uh, even GMIC, which has a command line interface as well, um, you know, those allow you to do much faster operations a lot against a much larger set of images quicker uh, than if you were trying to do it manually through GIMP. But GIMP can be launched from the command line and used in a batch operation. Okay, so under which license is GIMP distributed? Uh, GPL. V3? Hang on. V3. Yep. And do you know why this specific license was selected or is there any reason why you choose this license and not another one? I asked the team that question and the answer is lost to history as far as we're aware. There's maybe maybe somebody remembers, but uh, the, the, you know, the main developer uh, for GIMP at the moment, um, Mitch, uh, I, don't, I hadn't heard back from him yet, but I don't know that we remember why it was chosen. The best guess that I can get from uh, some of the team is that it's possibly due to uh, there's really only two licenses available at the time GIMP started for copyleft. Uh, you know, we could either do GPL or we could do BST license. So I think they chose a GPL. I don't know, maybe it was a coin toss or something. Could it be also due to, due to the fact that um, GIMP is the GNU image manipulation program, GPL being the GNU license? Uh, I, I would say yes, but that's, that's a red herring. Technically is the general image manipulation program. Okay. Right. And then, and then it was the, the Peter and, and, uh, Spencer, the original creators of GIMP were approached later, uh, by, uh, Stallman and the guys at GNU and said, look, we'd love to have this in this under the umbrella here. So the acronym was, it, it's a backronym. That was changed to retroactively be the uh, GNU image manipulation program, when in fact it was originally the general image manipulation program. What makes GIMP different from, let's say, Adobe Photoshop? Oof, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, it, because, and I'm going to quote my my PR director for GIMP here, uh, <laughs> because we're allowed to use cute mascots, but it's <laughs> it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it it shares a lot of the similar ideas. The thing is, is that the generic idea of manipulating a pixel in some way, right? Changing uh, a brightness or a color or a contrast of a set of pixels, right? Or, or some relationship between them. Those general generic ideas are kind of common against all bitmap or raster editors in some way. So we share a lot of the same tools, right? So someone wants to blur an image. Well, guess what? They've got a blur. We've got a blur, right? You want to sharpen? We have the same kind of tools. Brighten, you know, all those different uh, ideas. The difference more than anything else is that in GIMP, you truly are free to do what you want with it. And this is important, right? You, you know by using GIMP that nobody's going to come knocking later looking for a licensing fee or... Um, or any kind of legal problems with using this software for anything you want, including manipulating it. Okay. Yeah, due to the license, the, the, the four freedoms of the license. Yep, very much. And if we compare it to another uh, open source software, namely Krita, which is another more, it's more used in the digital image creation, but how would you define uh, GIMP apart from Krita? 
Yeah. So my own thought is that Krita is primarily a digital artist's tool. That is, it provides a unique and well well curated set of tools for creating digital art. And I, I, again, I'm going to quote Alex uh, Alexander Prokodin, who's kind of the uh, the man managing the uh, public face of GIMP for the most part. Uh, who I bugged quite a bit about some of these questions where he, he notices he's the one that says creator really focuses on advanced digital painting features while providing a good range of general image editing tools. GIMP has a wider range of general image editing tools for any kind of users, and it provides decent digital painting tools. So they're complementary, if anything. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna paint or you're gonna sketch or you're gonna draw your next anime or something like this, Krita is a fantastic tool for this. It's got it's very very focused on providing tool sets for a digital artist that way. But as a photographer, it has limited use to me compared to GIMP, for example. So yeah, is there any collaboration between Krita and GIMP on tools? Let's say I don't I don't think both projects will eventually merge, but like sharing uh, a blur is a blur, so sharing codes on how to do blurs on basic stuff like that. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know if if the team has grabbed anything from us or or vice versa. Nothing, you know, nothing immediately in mind. But I'm probably going to get flogged for not knowing that off the top of my head. But uh, no, I mean, and, you know, outside of things like plugins, right? So the Gamic project that provides a bunch of tools and filters uh, is also available in uh, Krita as well. So things like that whole suite of image editing uh, filters is available in both through an external plugin. Okay. So GIMP itself uses the experimental computing facility, XCF file format. Where does it come from? The X, the XCF, where does that come from? You mean? Oh, uh, yes. that, all right. So yeah, the experimental computing facility is a lab at an undergraduate organization at Berkeley, the university, which was where Peter and Spencer were doing their undergrad work when they decided they were going to create this program. So it's kind of a nod to where they came from. The X, the XCF itself, yeah, the name of the file format comes from there. Okay, so it was their uh, laboratory, you mean? That's right, yeah, the Experimental Computing Facility at Berkeley, yeah, University of California. Oh, okay. And how is the XCF format itself defined? Uh, is there any organization beside GIMP that is... Um, taking care of uh, expanding the, the format or taking care of the, the format? Uh, no, not really, right? So it doesn't really make sense in this context just because it's the XCF is GIMP's internal file format, right? That's the way that we represent the GIMP data on disk. Um, so it's not really intended for consumption outside of GIMP. Okay. So, okay. So there's no goal with the XCF format to be compatible with other raster edit editing tools? Yeah, it's not intended to be that way, right? I mean, what we'd rather intend is if you need things like open raster or something like that, then we provide an export functionality from GIMP to produce an open raster file format or something like that. But otherwise, this is purely an internal file format. Okay. Okay. So imagine one colleague sends your PSD file from Photoshop. Can I open it with GIMP? And is it possible to see the different layers? <laughs> uh, yes, kind of. With some caveats, some things work, some things don't work. Um, you know, the first thing I would do is call my colleague and um, berate them for a poor choice. 
That's the first thing. Then I would follow that up with a 30-minute long lecture on why they should be using free software, especially in science. Uh, I'd probably follow that up the next day to make sure that they actually internalized what I told them and to see if they had made any progress in wiping out proprietary software from their workflows. Once I've done all that, I could probably open some basic layers um, and import some functionality from a PSD. But a lot of this, a lot of the functionality doesn't map one to one. Right. So like adjustment layers is one that as a photographer in particular comes up constantly. Yeah. Right. Like being able to make a modification to a layer where I maybe add a, a blur, or turn it on a smart object and change the hue and saturation of that layer. Subsequent layer actions. Yeah. Right. So all the other layer actions. Or just white balance. That's right. Absolutely. Right. And then being able to change it later and then have that change uh, bubble up through every other layer above it and any other effects that have happened uh, is very, very nice. And that's honestly the number one thing that people refer to when they say that they have to have, uh, quote, non-destructive editing in GIMP. And they say, yeah, Photoshop has this non-destructive editing. Well, that's that's what they really mean is they want to be able to do something like that. Yeah. So I know also that GIMP is um, available in both uh, single window and multi window interfaces. How do you manage to have those two interfaces? Uh, is there a, pre a preference in the um, in the development to 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 either of these models? Uh, yeah, right. So originally it was multi window, and that's how it was for a long, long time. Um, a lot of people wanted single window mode for some reason, I think. And eventually we capitulated and managed to get it into a, a, a version in 2.8, I want to say. It became the default for GIMP in, in 2.8, a later 2.8 release. Uh, single window mode did. But no, it's it. it um, yeah, you can choose, choose what's most comfortable to you. And a good example of a workflow where it's uh, helpful, for instance, is if I'm working on a portrait and I'm making, or any photograph, and I'm making fine changes to a very zoomed in area of the photo, but I need to be able to also preview it from a very large zoom level, not, not quite as, uh, not quite as detailed. I can have multiple windows of the same image open at the same time in various states so that I can follow along. Yeah, it's kind of handy. I can't do that in single window mode currently, but. No, I can see why. Does the multiple window mode work under Linux in Wayland? I think so, yes. Yes, I'm pretty sure it does, come to think of it. I'm trying to remember if I tried that myself, but I think I did, yeah. Okay. So, is it possible to extend GIMP with your own image processing filters via plugins? Absolutely. See my previous comment about uh, Python or Scheme. Knock yourself out. <laughs> okay. And how deep do, does this integration uh, goes into the into GIMP? I mean, if you need to do special processing, not, not one of those plugins that is already there, but do you have access to the raw pixel data for, uh, let's say, if a scientist wants to develop a new um, filter for their image or for edge detection or uh, to pass like the, the, the image in MATLAB for processing before sending it back? Uh, is it possible to do that? Or may maybe not MATLAB, but Octave or uh, other or R or anything? Sure. Yep. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's not a problem at all. Matter of fact, this is something similar to how the Gimmick project managed to interface uh, their software into uh, into GIMP, right? Because you can call the Gimmick uh, plugin from GIMP as a, as a plugin where it will pass all the pixel data through, and then you can do all the filtering and processing that you want to there if you'd like to. So that that's certainly available if someone wanted to get creative and write a, an Octave or R or MATLAB plugin. 
Okay. Based on that, start jumping from your comment about GMIC, how these plugins are different from uh, the ones that could be available from MHG? That's a good question. Uh, only because I've only rarely used uh, ImageG personally. Um, I wish I could say m how they were different. Uh, I do know that uh, Gimmick is headed by David Schumperle out of France, um, a professor out of France, and he's a, a, an image scientist who uh, I honestly probably produced some of the single greatest uh, denoising algorithms available in the free software world. Uh, anisotropic uh, denoising is fantastic if you need to denoise an image, but then he extended it to a more generic image processing framework that kind of became Gimmick from the C image library. And uh, it's, it's ridiculously good. I mean, I'm also personal friends with him. So it's, I've come, I'm slightly biased because if I have a problem that I need a solution to, I can call an image scientist on the phone, <laughs> describe the problem. And I know if I word it just right, it'll bug him until he, and he'll work on it until he finds a solution. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But if you consider, let's say a scientific workflow where you need to, uh, you have a micrography of, uh, let's say cells and you want to, or particles and you want to isolate each of them. Uh, maybe GMake is more oriented like toward artistic image and image G might be more like to uh, actual image manipulation of selecting stuff, measuring stuff, maybe. Sure. It's possible, though. I got it. I can't stress this enough. The, the, the techniques used to isolate a single object, no matter what that object is or what kind of image it might be, are going to be the same. Whether I'm doing uh, X-ray crystallography, if I'm doing... Um, uh, uh, particular wavelength, uh, telescope data from a, a telescope, or if I'm doing, um, you know, machine learning image processing for watching flocks of birds fly through the forest. In every one of those cases, the techniques of isolating those objects and trying to make sense of them are, are going to be really similar between all of those disciplines. Yeah. I mean, uh, myself right now, my wife is a, uh, a, a marine botanist and, I help in, you know, friends that I have that work in uh, the marine field down here uh, where I live in various ways to identify when, you know, things have changed in an image, when particular fish or birds uh, show up in an image in a particular region or things like that. So those image processing techniques are kind of uh, going to be the similar across the spectrum. Okay. So these could be done with GMIC even. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No doubt about it. Oh. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so let us switch to your second project you are working on. You mentioned your the web page you are contributing to the pixells.us about free open source photography. What kind of information do you share on that page? Uh, yeah, I mean, that project is specifically about reminding or helping people to learn that for photography specifically, there is a huge free software ecosystem available to them to use. Right. And everyone's stuck on Lightroom or Photoshop or Bridge or Capture One from a uh, from a photography standpoint. And they don't even realize that there's a huge ecosystem of projects that are available um, that are all free, completely free to use. And my intention there is to make sure that anybody can get into the hobby or profession and that the barrier to entry is, is not software because it shouldn't be. It's hard enough to be able to take a good photograph without having to worry about whether I can afford to spend a forty dollars a month for some basic software tools to manipulate it. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we do. Yeah, we write we write tutorials and try to you know, support the projects there. Yeah, and as a photographer, you can say that your tutorials are really great. 
Great. Thank you. I hope they're helpful. I'm not a photographer, but I visited the webpage and there's also a forum where people can ask questions. Have you ever seen that researchers are popping up and ask questions how to improve their images for publications or need help on image processing? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have quite a few scientists uh, at the forums, believe it or not, and they come from all across the spectrum. So I'm not going to name any names, but we got a guy over at CERN uh, in Switzerland. We've got somebody from, uh, from California. Uh, actually, that's uh, Dr. Isaac Eula doing uh, uh, GIS and image mapping uh, over there. I don't know to what extent he's using free software tools there, but I know he's a huge free software advocate. Uh, he spoke at scale last year, the Southern California Linux Expo. I think him and I just barely missed crossing pads or just barely missed each other uh, in the night. But so, yeah, we've got quite a few folks of various degrees of, of capability uh, on the forums are talking about because some of this stuff gets incredibly complex, right? Just just look at color theory. Yeah, It's ridiculous, right? You think you have a handle on color until you start really talking to people that know what's going on with color. And that's about it. That's, I'm lost at that point, right? My goal was to make a pretty photograph. These people's goal is to extend our understanding of color models and color interactions in physical spaces and they're representing it. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And just basic color theory just for producing graphs by itself is really important. Like if you want uh, color blind people to be able to read your graphs or, uh, I don't know, you never know how people could be eye impaired or so it's really nice for a scientific communication to know about that as well. That's right. And a small plug, don't forget that the GIMP does, in fact, have a color-deficient vision mode so that you can see what it would look like if you had a color deficiency in your vision. Nice. That's could be, that could be really useful for, for scientists, <laughs> for publication. I think so, yeah. For accessibility, for sure. Yeah. So jumping from that, uh, as an image is worth a thousand words, uh, usually scientists often publish picture, pictures of their experimental setup or their results. Uh, how do you think that GIMP could help them improve the quality of their image? Um, quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's again, it comes back to, look, generally, you want the image to look well, whatever it might be, right? And what you're trying to do is usually, at least in an academic standpoint, you're trying to communicate something. So your goal here is to communicate something as clearly and efficiently as possible. Um, and if you need to make some modifications to an image, we have the tools, right? If you need to increase the contrast or brightness or color grading or you know, uh, highlighting specific areas of an image and, and uh, so on and so forth. All those tools are available to you to, to do that, to communicate better. Okay. Most of the scientists that I, that I have around me, that I know, uh, they do not come from an artistic background, so they don't have uh, a lot of knowledge in image editing. Do you have any resource that you would point them to for uh, general image editing in towards publication? Sure. I have two, two places to point them to. One, If you're at a university doing academic research, there's a pretty good chance that somewhere in your university is a marketing and communications professor. Okay. Yeah. Go and talk to these people. And it's a problem in science in general. This is kind of a small rant of mine because I'm married to a scientist and most of my close friends are all scientists as well. And we have a problem here in the United States with the, um, with the perception of science by the public overall. And, You, as an academic, they often will discount the requirement for having to effectively communicate what their research does and why it matters, because all they care about is doing the research. But I would argue that in, in most cases, it's almost more important to make sure that what is being done is easily communicated to the public and the policymakers, because those are the people that are going to fund your science. 
And those are the people that are going to implement the results of this academic research. So the number one goal in these cases for this kind of thing is to communicate as well as possible in no uncertain terms. So a lot of academics have a problem with that, just in general, right? We're not trained on that. That's right. And it's not a normal part of the training at all, but it's criminal that it isn't because it really needs to be. So if you don't have training, if you don't understand how to do a thing as an academic, what do you do? We look it up. You look it up. You go find someone that knows it and can help you with it, or you look up somewhere to do it. So why in the hell doesn't anybody do this for uh, outreach or communication of their results to other non-technical or non-academic audiences and they need to? And if that's the case, go talk to a communications person. They, they can help you to figure out how to effectively communicate your point. Uh, secondly, I'd say come to uh, come to where we are. Uh, you can come to Pixels if you want. We have a lot of, of, of photographers and image editors there that are all quite opinionated and are happy to guide people wherever they want to go. Failing that, find a community that has done this before and kind of reach out and find these things out. So, When speaking about publications... Can GIMP easy export image formats that can be easily be integrated in word processing or LaTeX documents? Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah, <laughs> there's such a huge range of what you can and can't, what you can export from GIMP that it's it, it'd be it'd be um, not worth our time to sit and walk through every one of them. But yes, we can absolutely export probably just about anything you'll need to import into a word processor or LaTeX in some way. Preferably LaTeX. You need to be avoiding a word processor for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, GIMP is like a, a Swiss tool to uh, for image manipulation. Yeah, it really is. As we're recording this episode, GIMP 2.10.6 is the latest version that is available, it, and it relies on JTK plus 2.0. That toolkit is a bit limiting in the ability of GIMP to scale and support uh, IGDPI display. Do you have any news about a transition away from GTK2 and possibly um, transition to GTK3 or other toolkits? Uh, yeah, this is a work in progress right now. So, yes, we are in currently in the process of migrating to um, uh, migrating away from GTK2. Uh, I think we're migrating to GTK3 in the current port. You know, there, there's some small unresolved issues, uh, you know, things like small icons, for instance, can be fixed because we can scale icon sizes and preferences in GTK2. Um, and then, you know, we do have a GTK3 port that's kind of working. Some people are using it all the time. Uh, it's not ready yet. I think we're probably looking at maybe at later this year, we'll be looking at an initial development release towards GIMP 3.0. Okay. So, yeah. Yes, it's been it's been a long time in the progress this sport. Yeah, it has, and we're slowly getting there, right? And it's funny too because you remember you remember what GTK stands for, right? The G game toolkit. That's right. <laughs> not not the GNOME toolkit. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. So yeah, it's we're getting there slowly. It you know we're, we're resource constrained is really our biggest problem. Okay, I think you already mentioned the Libre Graphics meeting, and yeah. I think there are meet many open source graphic communities. And can you define what is the purpose of this meeting? Uh, yeah, sure. So the Libre Graphics meeting is an annual meeting where they get together a bunch of various artists, uh, programmers, um, and uh, creative people, right, to kind of uh, meet, discuss, and present various creative endeavors using free software, right, in general. So we have a it's it's the primary meeting for most of the GIMP folks every year where we'll get out together and get all the GIMP team together face to face. Uh, many other projects will come together here as well. 
um yeah i mean it, you know it you can look up the past uh past meeting presentations uh from the lgm website but it's a fantastic place for everybody to get together i think i've been there maybe three times now uh, roughly every other year i try to make it out and, and spend some time with everybody and it's it is an awesome meeting with a bunch of fun great people I can't recommend it enough. If you ever want to just kind of see what's going on in the world of creative free software, um, it's it's a fantastic place to go and meet some great folks. Yeah. And is he meeting always at the same place or is it moving around? Uh, it moves around every year. Yeah. Uh, last year was Seville. This next year coming up is in Saarbrücken, uh, Germany. Saarbrücken? Am, I, am I saying that right or am I butchering that word? It's good. Is it close? You guys are laughing at me. No, no. We What do you I, say it? No, Patrick is German. So. I'm, I'm German, so I could say it in a really German fashion. Do it, do it, do it, do it. It's Saarbrücken. Ah, that sounds great. <laughs> I am not going to even try to say it like that. I'm just going to say how I think it would sound. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's where we are. That's where we are this year coming up in April. I'm actually thinking I'm probably going to make it out there this year uh, again, finally. So if any of your listeners are in the area, I can't recommend it enough. That is a great meeting to come out to. Okay. We'll jump a bit about the, the community <laughs> as we're speaking about it. How is our organized as a community around the GIMP project? Uh, well, yeah. All right. So we're all in, uh, in IRC is probably the greatest place to catch everybody. Um, otherwise, we're pretty loosely organized for the most part, right? Uh, GNOME access to get to those projects is good. Come into the IRC room or, um, you know, on the developer mailing lists are really the kind of loose way that we communicate everything. Uh, but honestly, the, the best is real-time communication in the IRC room for GIMP. Yeah, you mentioned you are limited in resources previously. So if someone wants to support GIMP, in which fields or areas are you searching for contributions? Is it only for coding? Is it for marketing or what kind of people you are looking for? Here's the little secret about free software projects. All help is appreciated, even if they're angry and tell you that's not the case. Um, and you don't have to be a programmer. I cannot stress this enough. I'm not. I, I, I can build websites. It's kind of a hobby of mine. They needed a new website because this was kind of old and needed to be modernized. So I did it. And here's the other little secret about free software. Doing is greater than saying. In a lot of cases, just do it. And in this case, it was great, right? I, I came in uh, to the IRC room. I chatted a little bit with the folks there and said, hey, you know, I can help with this website if you'd like. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of folks that could hand, hold your hand. So they said, well, show us what you got and we can see what we can do from there. So I just went out and did it. But if you want to join the community, show up in IRC, hang around, chat, say hello, hack at some things, submit some patches. Um, that's really the way to get involved. And, you know, You don't, it doesn't have to be huge. It could be little tiny patches. That's perfectly fine. I think more important is that you're around more consistently, right? Like be around. Don't show up and do a drive-by patch. But, you know, spending some time to get to know folks and spending some time to submit those those changes. And if it's not that, then write a tutorial. Or, you know what? Take a great photo or make a great painting and tell people, hey, I made this with GIMP. These are all very positive things. Yeah. So some communities have a list of issues for newcomers or even a code of conduct or some yeah, list how people should interact with the community. Does GIMP have something similar? Uh, yeah, on, on our Git, which is at uh, gitlab.gnome.org, 
for the GIMP project, we have labels for newcomers. And these are all issues that we think could be, you know, handled by somebody brand new to the project pretty easily. So Okay. And these are not all coding related? On the GIMP repo, they will be. But if you come into the IRC room and say, hey, you know, I just made this cool photo. What do you think? Uh, if you come and let us know that, then we'll do our best to let other people know that as well. And that's technically a contribution to the community in some way. Okay. Or, hey, I figured out how I could do this cool effect and write it down with some screenshots and tell me and I'll make sure it gets published and put out to everybody. Mm, nice. We briefly talked about it initially, but Tactic Project started from uh, University of Berkeley from the um, uh, experimental, uh, what was the name? Computing uh, facility. Ex yeah, ex exactly. When uh, when was that exactly? When did the project initially start? Oh, gosh. Uh, all right, 1995. Okay. I want to say late 95. That was kind of the initial emails from Peter Mattis, uh, one of the founders of the project. Yeah. Okay, the same level as the 1991 Linus email, you mean? Yeah, it's, it's actually it's similar in idea, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally, the original email, I literally think, reads, suppose someone decided to write a graphical image manipulation program akin to Photoshop. Out of curiosity, and maybe something else, I have a few questions. What kind of features should it have, and what file format should it support? That was the initial email. <laughs> okay. A few months later, we had the first announcement of GIMP 0.5, I think, something like that. Okay, so let us go away from the GIMP community and let us talk a little bit about open science. What is your vision about FLOSS and, and its importance for the openness of science? I, I ranted a little bit earlier about it as well. I'm extremely opinionated on this, it, 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 both as a scientist and as a free software user. One of the biggest tenets of science in general is repeatability. And it's a part that is often neglected for headlines or for convenience. But the reality is that I cannot say that a thing I've done has any valid significance if I'm not able in some way, in my opinion, at least, to be able to replicate those results and repeat that experiment. This is vital. You know, I can say, hey, I figured out that if I take this mold that grew on this orange, it kills a lot of bacteria. I can send a letter to my friend in in Germany and say, does this work for you too? And he can try it. And maybe he's a letter to a friend in Australia that says, huh, I think this orange mold kills bacteria. Until everybody gets an opportunity to try it and then report those results back to each other and continue moving that knowledge forward, it's, it's, it's non, it, it doesn't help to not be able to do that, meaning it, this is an important tenant of it. So imagine I said to you as a researcher in Africa or in Uh, in Eastern Russia, I found a cool algorithm for manipulating this image, but you can only get it and try it if you have MATLAB. Now, you only make the equivalent of one euro a week where you live, but how could you possibly help? Because you just, you can't, but maybe you're incredibly talented and gifted. There's some kid in Western China who is a great photographer that we're never going to see that work from because he doesn't have the tools to manipulate the images the way he sees it because he can't afford them. And that's not just for art, right? Yeah. And these things can happen in the weirdest places. You never know. So I, free software is important. Uh, I think it's vitally important for the future of science, not just open science, but science, period. If the intention is to cast the widest net of knowledge to everybody and to get feedback from a large audience, about things to help you improve your knowledge, then any barrier to entry to do that 
is getting in the way of science. And if it happens to be dollars to buy proprietary software, that's no different than having a censorship bureau at your government that won't allow you to publish to the world what you might have found somewhere. Right? The end effect is the same, isn't it? It's a matter of accessibility. Yeah, that's right. This is why the internet's so great. Yeah. That and cat photos. <laughs> yeah, we have a ton of them. <laughs> that's right. We need more. You can never have enough. <laughs> Do you think that using floss can also have negative impacts on science? I think that using floss can have a negative impact on science software providers. <laughs> <laughs> on their budget. I think using floss, yeah, I think using floss can have a negative impact on science journals. You think so? Right? I think open open access journals again, this is the same gatekeeper problem that I have uh with the accessibility to the data and the science itself and I think that uh, publishing journals is is hopefully going the way of the dodo bird at some point, right? But it's it's that When I say floss, I mean a full stack, right? In your head, you may be thinking using something like GIMP or using something like uh, LibreOffice or something like this. But I'm talking about, you know, the full HTML stack across the Internet um, and, you know, disseminating that information as far and wide as possible. And these you know, journals, as much as I love what they've done for us in the past, uh, they're slowly losing relevance as gatekeepers to that knowledge, right? So. So, yeah, I don't think it has a negative impact on science. It can only be positive. And, again, it's it's the negative impact maybe that people might have to learn something different. But is that really so bad? I don't think so. No. Yeah. And from the, our conversation, you, you probably sound more like a, an idealist toward Floss than a pragmatist. Am I right? No. I, you know, I'm actually probably the – I'm more pragmatic than most in the in the, in the project team probably. There's some that are extremely idealist, but extremely dogmatic about uh, its application and use. Um, I mean, to the point that I've had some fun arguments about whether we're going to be supporting Windows going forward or not, uh, because it's not a free platform, right? And, or Mac, Mac OS for that, for that matter. And honestly, I agree. Um, but I try to take a more pragmatic approach, right? And I try to make sure my interest is in making sure that what we're working on is widely available as widely as possible. And again, with as little barrier to entry as possible. So if it means that I have to maybe bend my, my ethics just a tiny bit in the context of a free operating system, then I'm willing to do so. Okay. Yeah. So that pragmatist point of view allows uh, a wider audience to access the software. That's right. Okay. What is your favorite text processing tool? VI. Vim. <laughs> That's easy. Okay. You didn't put it on the list. Angry about that? <laughs> yeah, we 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 don't always say the list of everything. But we have uh, we had various answers to that question, yeah. but nobody yeah, answered. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, no Vim for me all the way. That's just that's just the environment I'm used to. So, okay, great. That's what the GIMP website was made in. If anybody's interested, the entire www.gimp.org. The entire website from scratch was built entirely with me and a Vim window. Ah, okay. Do you, do you use any um, content manager for that website? No, it's a static website. So we okay. actually use Pelican, uh, which is a Python static site generator. Okay. Yeah, so we use Pelican to parse all of the files that are written in Markdown and then generate the website every time. So. Okay. We, we use Jekyll for our, for our blog. Oh, sure. Yep, yep. Which is about the same. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with us? 
Um, you know, pay it forward and make people aware, right? Like it, when you're talking to colleagues, they're not going to know what free software means sometimes. And if you just occasionally drop that comment and make a small point of just saying, Hey, I produced these graphs. I did them using GNU plot, right? Even just that little bit is sometimes enough. Or if you're open about it, you can say, Hey, I produced these graphs. I use GNU plot and here's the code I used to make it. Yeah. Right. And every time you get a chance, if you just have a moment, it's so little to make a comment about the ability to use free software in your workflow at all, whatever it might be. Um, so take every chance you can get to say so, because that's the only way we can stop. Cause I got news for you and it's bad. The proprietary software companies have marketing machines that one company's a tenth of their annual budget could pay for all the free software projects that are probably working on it right now. Yeah. So that's a huge monster against the ability to disseminate that information to people, let them know that those free options are available. So just make a small comment here and there, right? Maybe use it and show your colleague it and they'll slowly, slowly we'll start changing things mm-hmm. for the good, for the better. Yes. Thank you, Pat, for your time in this interview. If any of our listeners want to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? PatDavid.net is my website. All my contact info is there, of course. Uh, pixels.us. Or, you know, if you want to continue on the GIMP theme, it's very easy. It's PatDavid at GIMP.org. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay, bye. bye. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. Or you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitchers, and Google Play Music. You can help us by leaving comments and rating to help new listeners discover our show. Recently, we relocated our website at philosopherscience.com where you can find all our contact information and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our previous episodes or find the RSS feeds to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. And currently we are searching for users or scientists who are using FLOSS software in their research workflow. And yeah, if you're interested to talk to us about your research, your vision about open science and how you do your research with FLOSS, yeah, please contact us. We hope that you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.